This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's John Bank Centre for Astrophysics. For more information, see johncast.net. We are joined this morning by Professor Ben Stappers of our very own Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. You are head of the Pulsars and Time Domain Astrophysics Group here at JBCA. For the benefit of our listeners, could you explain a little bit about what that entails, what areas of physics that covers? Sure. We formerly were the Pulsar Group, but we realised that there's a lot of really very interesting science that is related to the techniques of pulsars. And so we've expanded that into including fast transients, so things like fast radio bursts, and even slow transients, which uh, might be X-ray binaries or things like that. Plus, we've also recognised the uh, overlap that we have with people working in the areas of planetary astrophysics, and also in terms of NOVI. So that's why we've included Professor Tim O'Brien and Eamon Kerens as well. So if it varies on what we might call human timescales, we want to know, would that be a fair assessment? Human timescales, yeah. I guess I think I usually think of it as nanoseconds to hours. You've been on the show a couple of times before talking about your research into pulsars, but that was a few years back. And since then, you have now formed the Meertrap Consortium based here at JBCA. Could you tell us a little bit about that, what you're up to? Sure. Meertrap is a European Research Council-funded project through an advanced grant. The main aims of the program come from the two halves of the name. So the Mir part comes from Meerkat, the SKA Pathfinder telescope that's being built in South Africa. And the TRAP part stands for transients and pulsars. So the idea is to carry out commensal observations with the Meerkat telescope to try and find new radio transients from basically zero seconds up to, to one second. There is a sister project called Thundercat, which looks at sort of seconds to longer timescales. And then we're also looking for pulsars in that commensally obtained data. Okay. You mentioned the phrase commensal surveys here, which is, as I understand, a key part to this whole undertaking. What do you mean by that? So basically... We don't get any actual time of our own on the telescope. What we rely on is the kindness of the people operating the so-called large survey proposals, or large survey projects, I should say. Those people will get given time on the telescope, and the idea is is that we simply piggyback on those observations. So they have kindly said we can look at all the things that vary rapidly in the data that they are acquiring. By doing that, we optimise the science return from any given hour spent observing the sky. Okay, well that that sounds like an effective approach. Yeah, we think so. You know, it relies on us providing all of our own instrumentation, all of our own software, um, but we work very closely with the Meerkat team to interact and make sure that our systems are able to talk to their systems. So you are having to develop your own systems in-house to be able to do the science that you want? Yeah, that's right. So we, in July last year, delivered a very large supercomputer to the location of the Meerkat telescope in the Karoo in South Africa. It's in a very nice building that they have there, one of the best server rooms I've ever been in, actually. And that supercomputer, it consists of a large number of compute nodes, graphical processor units, and that will process the data in real time. So that's part of the crucial aspect of this is the data rates, because we're spending maybe of the order of, in total, something like 20,000 hours on Sky over the next few years. There's no way we can keep all that data, so we have to process it in real time. And to do that, we need a very large computer. 
So it's, it's a question of storage more than anything. Yeah, it's just not feasible for us to store the raw data. So one thing we've not talked about yet is Mirlicht, which is another telescope that is working with Meerkat. Why does an array of radio telescopes need a small optical telescope to help it out? Yeah, that's a very good question. What the aim of the Meerlicht-Meerkat combination is, is that if you're looking for transient sources, and either through the Meertrap project or our sister projects, as I mentioned, Thundercat I already mentioned, but there's another one called Trapham, which, as you can imagine, stands for transients and pulsars with Meerkat. Those projects are all looking for things that vary. So we're trying to find either new variable stars or new transients or one-off events, something that might explode or accrete or something like that. Usually the evidence for that is not restricted to a single wavelength. So if you see something interesting in the radio, there's a strong chance that there's something interesting happening at other wavelengths. And so one way to see that is to have an optical telescope that's slaved to the radio telescope. So wherever Meerkat will be pointing at nighttime, Meerlicht will be pointing at the same piece of sky. It has a field of view which matches very nicely with the field of view of the Meerkat telescope. And so if we see anything interesting in either the optical or the radio, we can cross-reference and immediately see whether something interesting has happened. So one of the really interesting things from the Meertrap point of view is we're interested in the fast radio bursts. These very short duration events, and they are highly dispersed. So what that means is that as they pass through the interstellar medium, and perhaps even the intergalactic medium, they are delayed so that the lower frequencies arrive later than the higher frequencies. So what that means is that any fast radio burst that we detect, not only did it happen the light travel time ago, but it actually happened the dispersive time delay ago. Even if we could detect that transient and react immediately, there's the potential that if there was any prompt optical emission that went with that outburst, that would have been in the past. So we couldn't trigger a telescope to go and follow it up. The beauty of Meerlicht is Meerlicht was already looking. So effectively, we can look back in time and see if there was any associated optical emission with this. To catch it happening. Burst. Yeah, exactly. Do we have any ideas as to what this optical counterpart might look like to an FRB? Well, no, I don't think we do. I mean, there are some theories. The idea was proposed quite some time back that by Sir Martin Rees, for example, um, that uh, there could be prompt optical emission associated with neutron star neutron star mergers, for example. And so if fast radio bursts are potentially associated with those events, then you might also see optical emission. And certainly part of the argument is that the radio, while it's really, really important, actually doesn't trace the energetics very well. So most radio emission is, is weak in a sense. And so if these are very cataclysmic events, perhaps, if they've destroyed something or they're massive accretion events, then there should be a lot of energy released at other wavelengths. And so we might hope to see that come out in the optical or the infrared or somewhere. So that's why you have this optical telescope working with you? Yes, exactly. Because so, I went back through and looked at the stats for me, and it does look very impressive. It's a 100 megapixel camera they've got on the back of this thing. Yeah, it's, it's super impressive. I mean, the images are just unbelievable when you realize that I think there's the, one of the launch images, so the first light images, has more than a million stars in it. That is impressive. Yeah. 
there because you were at the inauguration of the Mirlik telescope in South Africa, weren't you? I was, yeah. I was actually lucky enough to go to both the inauguration of Mirlicht and Meerkat. Really very, very amazing events. It was just a huge privilege to be part of the sort of transformation that's going on uh, in terms of the science there. So straying away from the science for just a second, what are those events like? Is there a bit where the PI cuts a big ribbon with a pair of novelty scissors? In both cases, it's not the PI that gets to cut the ribbon. In the case of the Meerkat telescope, it was the deputy president of South Africa because it's a massive project. And in the case of Meerlicht, it was a representative from the ministry who got to do that. So, yes, the uh, the PI stands by uh, beaming, of course, being extremely happy that their instrument is now open. But the privilege of cutting the ribbon, as it were, goes to uh, important officials. Well, I suppose that makes sense, because we had doctors Bernie Fanneroff and Rob Adam, who of course are both involved with the SKA, on the show a while back, and they talked about the importance of the SKA to South Africa and African astronomy as a whole. Yeah. So it makes sense that they should be involved in that. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, without their input and their support and their financial support, these things just wouldn't happen. So it's absolutely essential that we uh, give them the honour that they deserve for that uh. And so another thing that Rob Adam mentioned at the Fanroff Lecture, I believe it was, was the importance of field testing prototypes for big scientific projects like this. And both Meerkat and Meerlicht fit into this philosophy quite well because they are both precursor telescopes. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about that, what the future might bring for these projects? I can try, certainly. I I 100% support what you mentioned that uh, Rob Adam said. In fact, Meerkat itself is, I think, now the third in their line of prototypes. They had a single dish as a demonstrator first, then they built Cat7, and then they went from Cat7 to Meerkat. And Meerkat itself is its a precursor, but it's also going to become part of the SKA mid-telescope. So mid meaning mid-frequency range. And so it's been an incredibly important demonstrator and technology proving ground for a lot of the SKA technology. And Meerlicht itself is the first of a series of telescopes that make up the array of telescopes, optical telescopes in this case, distributed around the world called Black Gem. And Black Gem has as its goal to follow up gravitational wave events. We know we've already seen from the one neutron star neutron star merger that has happened so far. Not the only one that's happened, of course, is the uh, only one we've detected so far. There was associated multi wavelength emission. And the idea of Black Gem is to follow up many more of these gravitational wave events because typically they're so poorly localized that you need to be able to look at lots of parts of the sky to be able to see if there's any optical emission. So the Black Gem team, it sounds like, are dealing with a similar problem to yourself, trying to follow up events that are poorly localized on the sky that go off suddenly. Yeah, that's right. For us, actually, fortunately, because Meerkat is an array of radio telescopes itself, our localization is actually quite good. We still have a bit of a localization problem, but in our case, we're trying to localize things to within a location in a galaxy, whereas LIGO, for example, has many degrees of sky in which the events might have occurred. So slightly different scales, but similar problems. Both of these telescopes are now on sky. Have you found any particularly new or exciting transients so far? Yeah, so unfortunately, we aren't yet... While the telescopes are on sky, we aren't currently on sky yet with the Meertrap project. 
we have, as I mentioned, we delivered uh, some hardware in the middle of last year, spent the last couple of months testing that hardware, making sure it's all working, developing our pipelines, rolling our pipelines out, and interfacing with the Meerkat system. As you can imagine, a system of 64 dishes, large correlators, very sophisticated, and a large amount of data is flowing around. So interfacing with them is, is challenging, and that's what we've been working on. But we're hoping to get on Sky uh, soon. Okay. Well, I'm sure we will all be keeping an eye out for that. So it's this building up of infrastructure, which I presume will pave the ground for the SKA when it is eventually completed. Yeah, that's the idea. Certainly, we are benefiting here in Manchester and in the UK from the work that we're doing for the SKA as well. So certainly, we're involved in designing and developing things for the SKA, and that's informing what we're doing on Meerkat. And then when we can actually take what we learn in the field and turn that back to inform our design. So yeah, there's a nice synergy there between what we're doing in the field and what we're doing in the design room, as it were. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because it is difficult to overstate the hopes and expectations that are being placed on the SKA when it does eventually come online. I don't know where you want me to go with that one. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay, you don't have to go anywhere with that. I mean, here in Exoplanets, we have our own golden goose in the shape of James Webb, so we are also guilty of that to an extent. I mean, I think you've got to recognise that the SKA is an ambitious project. It has a lot of different and varied science goals, and I think it will be an absolute revolution in radio astronomy. But all of these projects are incredibly challenging. But it sounds like you and your team are well-placed to help make that happen. Well, we are certainly keen to be involved. We have been involved in the design process, and we look forward to being involved as we move into the construction phase, if that's possible. I've got one last fun little question to close this out with. So you're still obviously very interested in pulsars, and there's always a pulsar of the week discussed at Jodrell Bank when the group all heads out there on Tuesdays. Do you have a favourite pulsar? And if so, which one? I probably do. It's simply for the fact that it was a large fraction of what I did in my PhD thesis. So that would be PSR J2051-0827, which is an eclipsing binary millisecond pulsar. So it's one of these pulsar systems which the pulsar itself is rotating very rapidly. It has a very small companion star. Something like 0.025 solar masses is the, is the minimum mass. And it eclipses the radio emission from the pulsar for approximately 10% of the orbital period. It's part of the whole spiders category of pulsars that your listeners may have heard about. These are either known as the Black Widow systems, which is what 2051-0827 falls into the Black Widow class because of its low mass companion. And then there are the redback systems, which have somewhat higher mass companion stars. Yeah, it goes all the way back to an object from my thesis. Oh, okay. There you have it, meerkats and black widows. Yes, astronomers are clearly firmly rooted in the ground when it comes to their naming systems <laughs> as opposed to in the sky. Well, I think that seems like a reasonable place to wrap up. So, Professor, thank you very much for your time this morning. Oh, you're very welcome. I really enjoyed it.